How abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Those are verses 19 to 24 of Psalm 31, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, January the 21st, 2021. 22. <laughs> You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at the Messianic prophecies from Isaiah. We're also today uh, in Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 9, and in Mark 4, 35 to 41. <clears throat> so, we're, we've continued it, where we are with the look at the prophetic stuff it is around the time of uh, King Cyrus of Persia, and the Lord's going to use him in order to deliver his people, but, but he's uh, preaching and speaking to Cyrus, actually, and allowing him to, to see, hey, it's not you, it's me. I'm doing the work here. I'm the one that, that is in charge. And it's those prophecies then carry forward into our day. So they have a short-term horizon of interpretation and then a longer-term horizon of interpretation. So in this Isaiah passage today, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Everything consistently goes back to creation. I mean, if you want to show that you're powerful and that you're, that you're powerful, so you're uh, omnipotent and you're also um, omniscient, then going back to creation is the place to go. And so he is the creator God, and that uh, identifies him as the only God. No other gods are like him because he's the one who created all things, including anything else that lays pretense to his throne. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I'm the Lord, and there's none other. I do not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So whatever he says, he doesn't say um, without any effect. Like when he created the earth, he's speaking here of creation, when he spoke all things into being, and then turns it and says, I didn't speak in secret in a land of darkness. I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. In other words, is the things that I do, that I speak, I speak for a reason, and I speak to create something new. And so when he spoke to um, the offspring of Jacob, he was speaking them into existence as a nation, a holy nation, his nation. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and carry on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. That's a refrain that runs through so much of these messianic prophecies in Isaiah particularly. There's no God besides me. When he defines himself as the creator God, that automatically 
defines everything else as underneath him. And so when he calls the nations to come and give an accounting of themselves and their gods, what he's saying is is that, that I'm the one who knows everything. I am the only true power in the universe. Everything else does what it's allowed to do. They have their realms and spheres of uh, influence, but nothing beyond that. Ultimately, he's in charge of everything that goes on. <clears throat> Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And we see that, right? We see that then over in the New Testament as well. We see that um, in Revelation, but we also see it in, in Paul's writings, that, that everything will be put in subjection under the Christ, the truly anointed one of God. We don't see it yet, but it's a promise that it will happen, and the resurrection itself is the basis for, the, for believing in that promise. There's one in the universe, and that's what we see in Revelation 5, that's found who is worthy to approach the throne of the only God and retrieve the scroll from him. And so this, like I said, this, this passage had an immediate short-term frame of reference that it could be interpreted in, and you you could say, did it happen? And the answer is yes, it did. Cyrus of Persia delivered the people. And then the second part of it is, is there a greater deliverance? And that's this, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. So this is an appeal beyond his, his immediate people to turn to him and be saved. That's not what was going to go on at the time of Cyrus. There's a sign and a witness that this happened, but the more long-term is pointing to the true Messiah, not just of, um, of the Jewish people in the time of Cyrus, but the true Messiah of all people, and that would only be Jesus. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed. All who were incensed against him in the land, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. We, because of Jesus, have been brought into a new covenant. But the new covenant didn't replace the old covenant. It was an expansion of that covenant. And so we are part of God's Israel. Today, that's who we are. And so we have come and we are joined together in this covenant. And that's the, the issue that, that Paul fought over and over and over again was not whether that was true or not. It was just how we are incorporated into that covenant, into God's everlasting covenant with his people, which includes both Jew and Gentile, both of whom actually get in the same way through faith in the blood of Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. No other work is necessary to do that. In the gospel today, essentially, this sounds like a parent at some level, the the way that I would interpret it. If I just wanted to break the whole gospel down into one very short sentence, it would be, you want something to be afraid of? I'll give you something to be afraid of. So on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Remember, these guys, at least four of them, we know, made their living on this very body of water. 
as fishermen, and they fished frequently at night. So they had some skills, but they're feeling overwhelmed by what's going on. The other thing I want to point to are the parallels in this story with Jonah's story when he runs from the Lord, and he is in a boat uh, trying to get away, going in the opposite direction from the direction the Lord had sent him. And as he's in the boat, this big storm arises on the sea, and everybody in the boat panics except for, well, one person, and that's Jonah, who's asleep. And they have to wake him up. And then ultimately what happens is he says, look, you know, this ain't going to stop to get rid of me. you got to throw me overboard. And after asking for forgiveness for doing so, they do that very thing. And the wind and the waves stop at that same time. So here we go with this now. He was in the stern. He, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? What an interesting um, question to ask the one who actually is here for that mission, because he cared that they were perishing, and he's saving them from that. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it's interesting because, you know, like I said, the the point that I would make in this would be essentially Jesus is saying, you want something to be afraid of, I'll give you something to be afraid of, right? I mean, now they're more afraid of him than they were of the wind and the waves. But the funny thing and the sort of human thing in this is, is, is that would this, it wouldn't it be nice if this were the final time Jesus had to prove himself to his own disciples, if they continued to carry that fear of him. But the problem is, is that that sometimes what can happen is we can be so familiar that we no longer have fear. And it's important to always remember who he is. And that's the reason in the Isaiah passage, God's reminding them who he is and the power that he has in them, but at the same time beckoning them, the nations, to come to him. For salvation. It, it's, there, you see echoes of Job, because he says, come on, you want to come take counsel together? Come on, bring it. Bring it right here. Let's talk. And you, 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 you see if you can hold up your end. And here it's the same way, but, it, but the disciples lose that. They lose this moment. And sometimes that's what happens is we have a moment with God. And then, well, that moment passes, and then we lose that sense of immediacy and that sense of um, having had a need met that only he could meet. And, and we'll do things later like Peter does, which is to say, whoa, 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 Jesus, you're wrong about this. You're talking about this whole crucifixion thing. You've got to stop that. You know? And Jesus has to look and say, get behind me, Satan. So the same people who are here recognizing that, that the wind and the waves obey him, all of creation, the inanimate, quote, unquote, things obey him. Um, who is this? Who has that kind of power? So in the um, Ephesians lesson, remember yesterday the way we ended up was Paul was speaking to wives and husbands, and he told the wives to submit to the husbands, but then he told the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, be willing to lay down his life that she might be a pure and spotless bride. And so here, now we move on from husbands and wives to children. Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, and the promise is that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Because your parents won't always be there. One day you'll be a parent. And so 
what you pay gets paid forward. So it, whatever you do will be shown back to you. And the reason that God would have that in such a high place in the commandments was the parents are the instruments God used to bring you into the world, to give you life. You wouldn't be here, and particularly in Israel, you wouldn't be in the covenant had it not been for your mother and your father. And so it, you're in, you, you've got to learn to honor your father and mother, and you've got to be commanded to do that. It's a very difficult thing in some situations to have people um, honor their father and mother because their father and mother haven't actually been there to be that person who would be honored. And so always we need to be clear on how do we honor them and how do and what do we do in order to honor them. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, in the instruction of the Lord. And so he's, he's talking about obedience, discipline, instruction, but then says don't provoke them to anger. And so fathers, the men here, are enjoined to, to deal with their children in a certain kind of way, right? So they're going to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, but they're not to provoke their children to anger. I, I don't see a corresponding thing there where it says mothers don't do this. Um, so the, the burdens that are laid on the men in that society are great. Bond servants, he's just working through relationships. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. That is not remotely the way that Jesus is, is taught uh, anymore. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. This fear and trembling thing, we just smooth that right out, right? I mean, Jesus is my buddy. He, he's, yeah, he's God. Yeah, sure, we're good with that. But he loves me so much that he died for me. He does, and he did. However, <laughs> he is God. And when we can't become so intimate with Jesus that we lose sight of that fact, that, that's a problem. Uh, it's a problem in the church today because we've defined Jesus pretty much as my buddy who d- will do anything for me. It, it, without a requisite um, understanding of who he is or obedience to him. <clears throat> Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, don't pretend to, to obey, don't do that kind of thing. And everybody knows what that is, you know, right? I think we all know that. I think we all know the difference between somebody who has a legitimate relationship with somebody else and wants to do what they can to please that other person because of their relationship and, I'm just going to say it, a brown noser. Those are two different things. And we know the difference, and you can spot it very easily. You, if you, It's been a while for me since I've been in class, but... I remember, I can think of particular people <laughs> that I can remember right now. It's it's insincere. It's just, it's not from the heart. It's just, I'm going to do this thing because, I, hey, that'll get me in good standing. God knows the heart. Remember that always. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. In other words, your status makes no difference to the Lord. He doesn't care. That's an earthly, temporal thing. That goes away. There's no greater honor in being a slaveholder or or a master than there is a bondservant in the kingdom of God. 
Those two things are immaterial, and they exist only during the period of time when you live in this body on this earth. So he, he's saying, don't worry about any of that stuff. And, and essentially what he's saying is, I don't, you know, don't do it. If you've got a grudge, if you don't care for your master and he's a jerk, well, do it for me. Absolutely. Do it for me. Do everything you do as though you were doing it for me, and you'll get a reward for having done that. <clears throat> Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. The way that we interact with one another is not defined by our roles or our relative positions in society. We should not be any different with somebody of low estate than of humble estate. We should not uh, deal with people according to position in any shape, form, or fashion. Every single human being that I interact with is potentially a child of God. And I don't want to offend him by the way I treat his children. It's not a good plan. It's something that we need frankly, a better sense of, I believe, in a lot of ways. We can't be, we shouldn't be intimidated by people just because of the position they have in the world. That No, that, that's all flattened out in Christ. We all come as sinners saved by grace, period, end of sentence. None of us bring any merits to the table that made us more lovable to him. Because we have wealth, it doesn't mean we're more lovable to him. Because we have nothing doesn't mean we're less lovable to him. No, we're all the same. And that's why when Paul writes these epistles, it's a remarkable statement that he'll make right at the beginning always is brothers. Nope, that's who we are. We are brothers. We are not uh, positionally different. I have a job, and my job is apostle, and woe to me if I don't do that job. And then he's always at pains to make sure that he flattens out all, all the earthly distinctions and differences between people based on class and status and says, no, 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 we're all the same. We are all the same. doesn't matter about class, position, and status. And, and we need to, to remind ourselves, I think, frequently that we are all the same, but he's not. That he is not the same as us. Uh, we are his brothers and sisters because he made us that. Because he loved us enough to make us that and to make a space and a place for us in the Father. And we owe him greatly. We owe him greatly. We owe him our lives. We owe him everything that we have. And we need to always remember his love for us, how deeply and dearly he loves us. But at the same time, we need not flatten the distinction between us and him.